winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 66th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Edid. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you well wherever and whenever you may be. This episode is a conversation about the salmon fishing station at Camus in the Ross of Mull. Our guests are Sheena Walker, Marianne MacDonald, Kirsty Lord, Sandy Brunton, Gregor Cameron and Douglas Canning, all of whom are part of the McInnes family who ran the fishing. This podcast was recorded as both a podcast in its own right and as research for the film Creel of Stories, Cleave and Cherichish, which tells the story of fishing cultures in the Ross of Mull and Iona. The film was produced by Celia Compton for Southwest Mull and Iona Development, SMID, funded by Year of Stories from Visit Scotland. Creel of Stories was filmed, directed and edited by myself. If you want to see the film, please follow the links in the podcast notes or on our website. Alternatively, you can find it on Vimeo and YouTube. Celia joins our recording about halfway through to take some photos. Our conversation was recorded through the medium of Zoom, which means that the sound is a little bit glitchy here and there, so I really do apologise about that. This episode is a long one. There is so, so much to be said. I think it paints a very clear picture of Camus at a certain point of time. It's also so lovely to have a family group together and talking and sharing memories. At the end of the podcast, I'll talk briefly about the school's podcast project that Hannah Fisher and myself delivered in the spring-summer of this year for Fishing and Gale, called Treor. Now, without further ado, I pass you over to the members of the McInnes family. Who are you? I'm Kirsty Lord. My maiden name is Cameron, and I'm the daughter of one of the McInnes lassies, Flora. I'm uh, Sheena Walker, and I'm the daughter of Katie McInnes. I'm Marianne, and I'm also the daughter of Katie McInnes. Uh, so I'm the son of Tom Brunton and Mamie McInnes. I'm uh, Gregor Cameron, I'm Kirsty's brother, and my mother was... Flora, Flora McInnes. Hi, I'm Douglas Canning. My uncle, Tom, was Sandy's dad, who married Mamie McInnes, which connects me to the Kinnis clan, and I used to go to Camus as a youngster. Thank you so much. So, to think about it, um, where does the family involvement in Camus start? Who would like to tell us, where does it start? So our grandfather, Alan McInnes, was, uh, lived in Karshik. The whole family lived in Karshik, and he fished uh, salmon at Karshik. But the estate owner decided that they wanted to take the fishing back and operate the fishing themselves, so he had to find another fishing, and he negotiated uh, with the Iona community to take on the fishing at Camus. And so initially the drove down from from Karshig to Camus and were there for the summer and occasionally went home at weekends. And then eventually our grandfather, Alan McInnes, and um, and his daughter, Annie, moved to Finnefort. And then it was easier to commute between Finnefort and Camus. But our grandfather lived over at Camus most of the summer and didn't go home at weekends. Um, But actually, they started off 
uh, with uh, fishing uh, in Los Creedon. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot to say that. Oh no! So they came to Cashel first of all, oh. and they and they went. They, he was fishing in Los Creedon, and that that was polluted with seals, I think it was, and there's very few fish. So then he got the lease of, okay. of the fishing at Cashel. Yeah, that's right. And that was 1923, was it? Oh, I've got the I've got the years. Um, um, but we can we can go back to that. Another no worries thing. at all. <clears throat> so, what was the scale of the fishing at Loch and, and then at Carsig? How many nets were they operating at both these sites, or you know, progressively from one to the other? How were they? How many were they operating? We've got very little detail about Roscreeton um, at all, um, to be honest. Uh, I don't think it it lasted long there because I think it was it was not survivable really. Um, so, but I think in in Kashig, at diff, well, what happened in Kashig was that when Grandpa left Kashig, the fishing was the fishing in Kashig stopped until. My father went back to Karsig after my mother got the job of the head teacher at Penny Gale School. So right. then dad started fishing back up again in Karsig after that. And how many nets were there at Camus? Does anyone remember how many you were, you were maintaining there? Uh, yeah, there was two nets, so the main nets, there was the boys' net and sword point. Now, there was also occasionally a net at Hen Point. Uh, Point, but I think there also had at one time been a net at uh, Artan Point. But the story was that the fish tended to disappear with a bit of human help from that one when nobody was looking. So they preferred not to put a net there. I don't know if anybody remembers that. <laughs> Can I just throw in a wee story here that might be interesting for you, Alistair? Please. Not so much for the immediate family, but. Uh, when I first ever went to Camus and we went into the Iona community side, where the fireplace was, you may all remember, there was a lot of black staining on the, around the fire because there had been, uh, the story was that the fishermen who were bossing there had thrown what they thought was paraffin in the fire, which turned out to be petrol. They had, well, they had got badly injured. Now, oh, no. what it turned out was, well, I think one of, one of them died because it was so far for a doctor to get in there, to bring oh. the doctor in by boat. Anyway, I was in the salmon shop one day, and that was all I knew about that story. It was very thin. And I was in the salmon shop one day, and I was talking to Big Maggie. And, of course, Big Maggie's got venison connections to the McKinnon side of her family. And it turned out these were her relations. It was the Graham family of venison. And so there must be a whole story about that, which I think hasn't been recorded anywhere. And I thought it might be rather nice to speak to Maggie and see if she knows more information about that. Right, gosh, no, that's that's grim. <clears throat> that's um but Maggie's someone I've I've kind of talked to in, in the, um, the shop. I said, Oh Maggie, I think it'd be really interesting to talk to you. Said, oh, I've got nothing to say, which is always a really good sign that someone has got something very good to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Just a bit about the fishing before this time, which must be way back. So no. That's great, because if they started in the twenties, as you say, that's quite, quite, quite something. Um, aye. So, um, can you then describe to me um, what was Camus like? How, what would, what did it feel like, Gregor? What did Camus feel like to you? Can you describe the space, the nets, the boats to me? What was it like? Well, 
I loved it over there. I would have gladly put my roots down there if I was allowed. <laughs> I was there in the seventies, the, the early early seventies, and I was basically the chief bottle washer. <sighs> uh, and I used to like get uh, out in the boat and and knocking the salmon on the head. That was another job I could do. But uh, I stayed with them in Fiddler at the time. And uh, quite often we would stay overnight at Camus. Uh, and uh, I would exchange lots of stories with Bertie about his days in the Falklands. And oh, wow. The peat fire in, in Camus, you know, mm -hmm. and it was a great learning experience. Mm -hmm. So it was it was work during the, the day, and it was it was a bit of jollity at night, and uh, I loved it as long as the weather over there. I uh, I could see Marianne. Uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, I wasn't at Camus very often, but we used to go for periods in the summer holidays. Mm -hmm. And actually, my mum and dad had a season where they helped grandpa. They worked there and I was I was billeted with granny back at Free Orland. So <laughs> that was when I was four. But then later on, I went and I can just remember the, the hard beds through in the room where it was all very spartan and everything was made out of like fish boxes and, and stuff like that. But it was Aunt Yan and grandpa and a don't really remember who else was there. Uh, and Anne had a lovely garden and behind the wall, lots of blackcurrant bushes. And lovely. my abiding memory is being the only time I was ever, ever seasick was at Cal. <laughs> <laughs> it was because we had beetroot for dinner. <laughs> oh, nice purple spew. Oh, yeah. no, thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's quite funny, really, because, I mean, even though our own parents were fishing and were doing the fishing, we were sent off down there to get out of their way. <laughs> so there was quite a lot of space at Camus, Alistair, just yeah. thinking about it. So um, going in, so the, the main bit that was used was the second door from the far right-hand end. The door from the, the far right-hand end door was where the chemical toilet was that you mm. had to step over. There was no floor, so you had to step up. I just I hadn't thought of this for a long, long time. So you had to step over the rafters to get to the chemical toilet. Not to be recommended in the dark. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and Grandpa would only only ever buy the Isol hard sandpapery paper. Oh, I remember that too. Yeah. <laughs> and that would be the only that would be the only toilet paper that was ever allowed. So that whole that whole section at the far right hand end was the the unfloored single toilet or or, or chemical toilet. <laughs> it was a bucket with a lid on the top of it. And so but the next bit Actually, you went in the door, and on the left was a sort of sitting room kind of bit that was, and Grandpa's bed was on the right-hand side, and it, like a built-in box bed kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then behind that was the kitchen, which is where most of the activity ha happened. And there was a fire actually in both bits, if I remember. Oh. But it was the fire in the kitchen that was usually on yeah. with a peat, peat fire. 
And then on the right-hand side of that was the, what Marianne said, was the, the room. And behind that, there was storage as well. So there was quite a lot of space, actually, because in the room, there was bunk beds built into the sort of wall again. And uh, there was another couple of beds on the other side, I think there was. Yeah, and then, so there was there was quite a lot of space there. Mm -hmm. And there was no running water. Really? Uh, there was no running water. No, there was a granite-lined well. Um, that had to be cleaned out once a week. So you had to take all the water out with the bucket, scrub it all down and let it refill. But if that well went dry, there was a second well further around, wasn't there? Yeah. Yes, further around the back. And you used to watch your face in the little pools outside that the quarrymen used to make. And I was remembering to ask before that there used to be little elders in there sometimes in the summer. Does anybody else remember the elders in the pools? Oh, no. <laughs> They washed the nets in oh, the yes. pool. Right. There was a lot of elders in there. Mm. Yeah. The next door along was where, where the work happened. Mm -hmm. so, so that was where the tools were kept, and that was where the fish were weighed, and there was storage in the back of that as well. So that was where that was where all the records were kept. Oh. Um, in in our desk just at the door on the left-hand side, if I remember. And then there was a, a, a set of scales with, with pans that you could you would put the fish on the pans to weigh them. So there, there was quite a bit of accommodation uh, or space, which included accommodation, yeah. wasn't there? So there was there was four main apartments in the big big building at Canvas. Mm -hmm. the, the first the first one you, you came to was the Iona community yeah. where they mm -hmm. were. They slept upstairs on the whole floor, uh, all those all those people that came on the adventure holidays. Mm -hmm. And then there was that bit that Sandy's describing there where they stored all the boat stuff and the petrol and the oil and things like that. And then there was our living quarters and then it was a chemical toilet, but it also had a very, um, it sounds strange, but it had a smell. Um, a couple of, not the toilet, I mean, cows. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, Sandy's sister Mary and I uh, went for a walk down to Camas, and I hadn't been for donkey's years. And just as we were getting, coming down the path, just to the sort of the gate, where the fence is now there was this smell and I thought oh my god and I'd forgotten you know what I mean it was only when I smelt it again I remembered the smell but it's a lovely smell <laughs> and what did that smell bring back was there any kind of clear pictures that brought back douche like that um just the nets hanging up and uh this sort of the I don't know it was I, I can't even really describe smell but it was a smell that I'd never smell anywhere else ever. Oh, I love so that. So I don't know. That's brilliant. Oh, that's sort of that's kind of the pre-rational stuff that I think is just so interesting. We relate yeah. to story particularly well through pre-rational stuff. So that's that's fantastic. Um, does anyone else remember the smell of camas at all, apart from the chemical toilet, of course? Don't necessarily remember the smell that up up in the uh, chapel, which was upstairs in the Iona community, but that all smelled very kind of musty and netty because there was net stores up there as well as uh, the chapel and the dormitories for the um, 
for the community people. I think to back in the in the in these olden days, the, the nets were tarred. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. I didn't know that. that. Of, of, yeah, yeah. Of, of everything. Yeah, that's right, Greg. Definitely a tarry smell up there. Yeah. And did they tar them there, or no, were they tarred? When you would make, they would be made of natural fiber, which was uh, twisted, all twisted together, which would then be treated at, before it was twisted together. So it would have been in the manufacturing of the ropes and the rope walk. There would be it would be made of whether it was hemp or whatever else it would be made from. Well, I just I looked this up this morning because I remember that the ropes were hemp and manila. Uh-huh. And I just assumed that manila was another kind of hemp. But seemingly manila was different. It was made from a plant that's related to the banana family. Mm-hmm. And the difference seemed to be that hemp ropes tended to rot because when you hung them up in the winter, they would dry on the outside, uh-huh. but they would hold moisture on the inside. <laughs> Interrupt with Manila seemed not to do that. Manila lasted better in the sea. So hemp ropes, I think, would have been tarred, but I'm not sure that Manila ropes were. But what you will remember though, when a new hemp rope came out, uh, it had to be stretched because it would to get the kinks out and it would also shrink when it got wet. So there's a whole system of rigging up all over the greens with pulleys. Mm-hmm. So you would tighten it all up. And then you would let it um, slacken a bit, and then you would tighten it up again, and so I on. Didn't I don't remember that. that uh, that's so. fantastic. The, the, the nets then were very, very heavy oh, when, right. when they were wet. Aye, really and heavy. Until the, the nylon nets that were developed later on, they were far lighter by comparison. Very much. Yeah. When they were strung out like that, was the, that the nets themselves that were strung out with the pulleys, or was that just individual ropes that were strung out in pulleys? Well, both. The ropes would be stretched in that one particular instance when it was a new coil, uh-huh. so they could use it. Uh, but there was a whole system for laying out the nets and holding up the bag net so mm-hmm. it could be cleaned and repaired, and that would be done with poles and pulleys and, uh-huh. and so on. So, so, so even with the older nets, the, the nets would come ashore and they would be, would be pulled up on th- the three poles that would be the same as poles that would be used in the water mm-hmm. to stretch them to make the bag. So there'd be the head, heavy, big head pole, and there'd mm-hmm. be the two cleek poles. And the, 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 when the, the rope, the, the nets were ashore, mm-hmm. you would pull them up in stages and mm-hmm. pick them and fix any breaks, and then they would be complete and inspected and then they'd be packed up and ready for going back in the water again to be they'd be packed up. When the nets were stored in the winter upstairs, uh, you had to be really um, wary when you handled them in the spring because the jellyfish things would still be on the nets. Oh. Even though they're dry, I remember your eyes particularly you had to watch because yeah. it was drop mm-hmm. So the jellyfish things were pretty resilient. I remember getting stung. In the springtime. You mentioned there about Bertie having been in the Falklands. Now, what was the story there with being in the Falklands? That's where it brought up. His yes. family were from Falklands, and there was a whole, a whole, a whole 
a whole bunch of the uh, McRae family ended up here or hereabouts. So his his mother at one point was in Knockin. Mm-hmm. His uncle John McRae was at Knockbulligan. So Mary Margaret McRae, uh, her father was from the Falklands. Bertie's brother, George McRae, farmed first of all at Ardalanish uh, and then at Sui. And his sister, Dolly, was in Oban. And his mm-hmm. their, their brother, Dennis, stayed. Dennis had Downs and mm-hmm. Dennis stayed with Dolly. Mm-hmm. And then there's various family. There's still family around about Oban. There's still... Um, so uh, Dolly had a ha, has a daughter, Jennifer, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, her married name was McLean. And there's McLean's in Oban that are still part of that side of the family as well. So there's a whole lot of folk from Falklands that were... What was it yeah. they were doing? Was it whale fishing that they were doing in the Falklands? Or what was the, the main industry then? Well, no, Bert, Bertie, Bertie was a... Sorry, Gregor. They looked after about 3,000 sheep on, a, on an island in the Falklands. And Dolly wrote an interesting book and she, her nom de plume was Dolly Penguin. Mm-hmm. Ah, fantastic. Still around, still around somewhere. It's all, uh, it all about their life in the Falklands when they were children and growing up, and it was a hard, hard life. So yeah. All it consisted of, really, when I read it, was, you know, looking after the sheep, um, collecting wild birds' eggs like penguins, yeah. and, and peat cutting. Peat cutting mm-hmm. took up a terrible lot of the time. Because it was all the fuel that they had had in, on the Falklands. So Bertie, Bertie became a, a, a merchant seaman actually, yeah. and he he started sailing. It was sailing boats that they had going round about the, the estates, the, the the islands, the different islands to to deliver uh, goods and to pick up whatever was there. And he went round about the Falklands as part of a crew on a oh. on on a boat, and then. He, he he was a, a merchant seaman worldwide, but he was the bosun on the John Bisco, which was the Antarctic survey ship. And I think he spent something like 13 or 12 summers in Antarctica. Wow. Uh, as part of the John Bisco. But in in the in the winter southern hemisphere he would come back to uk because there's a whole lot of family there's a cut rod there's a cousin rod as well was in southampton um actually mm-hmm. we went to see him when we stayed in southampton and um he would come back to uk and mostly west coast and he worked with uh, mcbrains and that was how he managed he was kicking about here well thank you that's great um sheena yeah i can see what would you like to say I've managed to, I think I've managed to find the photo, so I'll try that again. No worries <laughs> at all. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Sandy. That's Fingers really clear. Crossed. Yeah, what an interesting... Are you seeing uh, that? Just coming through. Yes, we got you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Fantastic. Really... Fantastic. Look but at that's that. um, our grandfather, myself, and our my wee sister, Phony, and... Our Auntie Anne with the nets hung up, and we're all picking the sea, dried seaweed off the net. 
Oh, yeah, that's a nice one, Sheena. I've got one more. I'll see if I can show you. What did you do with the dried seaweed? Would it just go into the ground or were you collecting it for anything at all? Uh, Can you see that with the boxes? No, it hasn't moved on. I'll try again. I'll just keep, I'll try in the background to get the next one up. Yeah. So what's the, what was the purpose of taking the seaweed out of the nets? Obviously, that's fairly obvious. But yeah, what 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 is it that the what would be, be wrong if it got all tangled? It's cleaning. It. It's cleaning the net because the net, net when it's hanging in the sea gets completely covered in in uh, seaweed and slime, and it's uh, then changed about every four sandy five six days. Uh, and depended on the time of the year because as the water heated up, then the it would get gungier sooner, and the 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 this they was it was reckoned that the fish could smell a dirty net. Yeah, It'd be less mm-hmm. to go into the net. So the um, net was. Although, yeah, they would. They, the net was set so that they could practically not avoid it. But if it was if there was a strong smell, they would keep clear of the area so they wouldn't go in. That was the theory, I think. So they brought the net in and hooked a new net, a clean net on, but took the dirty net in and washed it in the, in the damned river. Yes. Dumped about on top of it with your waders on, and then it was hung up and left to dry. And the dry the remains of the dry seaweed was all picked off until the net was clean again, ready to go back out to swap over with the dirty net. How many nets would they have in rotation? Was it like two or three? Uh, well, there was the. Yeah, they would have needed to have been two or three for each for each net, so it's a yeah. lot of work. A lot of nets. So, canvas. If they were sometimes there would be a a, a double head on one of the, mm-hmm. the, the the positions. So the the nets were fixed to the shore with uh, chains onto pins that were driven into the rocks, and the the outside of the net then had to get fixed to the seabed somehow or other. And it's usually an anchor or sometimes two anchors. But if it was a, if it was a good fishing position and it was a good year, sometimes it would extend the catching out by a double net. So they put a double net on the outside of it. So that right. took a whole lot of extra work as well. Wow. It was... Um... Incredibly heavy, even when it was the 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 nylon net, it was heavy enough to pull it into the boat. But with the cotton net, it must have been horrendous. It don't build them like that anymore. <laughs> so we carry the nets on the the, the net barrel. Yeah, we a couple of poles in the boat. Right. I remember, I remember with the, the cotton nets, your arms used to grow as long as your your feet or something. Yeah, <laughs> the time you got it up the shore. So yeah, the, the, yeah, 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 like yeah, Alice the I remember that um, our job was to when the, when we would hear the boat coming, we would go down and watch. And uh, Sandy's father would put his arm up for eat for the number of boxes that we were to bring down empty to the boat. So we had to watch the boat, while he, and he gave us the signal of by raising his arm, however many boxes he wanted down. <laughs> That's brilliant. That would all be done by telephone these days with a text. <laughs> exactly. Ah, yeah. So what were your favourite jobs there within it? If I can ask, uh, let's see, Kirsty, if I can ask yourself first, what were there, were there oh. any jobs that you loved doing? No, um, I was very rarely there. Um, 
my summer holidays were usually spent up at Auntie Katie's house in Dervig. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I know, which was quite weird because I was then down at Camus. Yes, <laughs> it was very strange. I really figured out whether I was sent to Camus to keep my Auntie Anne company or just to get rid of me out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've told, I've told that story before, which is quite on, you know, when I did the um, interview mm. with Yalster, but I got sent down with um, Neil Burnbank's father. He was uh, had the contract for cutting the grass in the graveyard. And so my mother would ask him, Big Alistair was his name, when he was going to Finnefort. And she was... <laughs> um, I got sent in the sitting in the front of the van between him and Charlie Darach all the way from Sal and Finford when it was about five or six. Goodness wow. gracious. And then I got sent home by various other things. But then later on, I got sent on the bus. My mother would take me to Craig New and put me on the bus and I would go down that way. But I stayed in Camus for a, num- a good number of summers and I must have been really small at first when I went because I remember I slept inside a bolster case oh gosh my bed was inside a bolster case on the chaise long that was behind the kitchen table oh goodness I must have been really tiny <laughs> and then oh. later on I slept in with Auntie Anne yeah I remember going to, 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 to Devic uh, actually, to go way out to Derby. I remember getting sunstroke in Derby. Oh, yes, that's oh, Aris. I remember that too. Yeah. <laughs> you went to Aris and you got sunstroke. Yeah. It was the day of the Tuggermory Games. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting the kind of wider family going back with the McFeels because they were, the McFeels were cousins, first cousins of our grandfather, and that's how we're related to John Moan. But they were, all, they were fishing out of Eastdale, weren't they, Sandy? And, where they, and Alan McPhail was fishing. Kerrida as well. Was that where they were as well? Well, they, the McInnesses lived in Kerrida, but I, I'm not sure where all they were fishing, but Alan McPhail was fishing at uh, Easdale, wasn't he, Sandy? I don't know that, actually. Because the other story that I had was when we were in Derrick, when I was when, when, tiny again, maybe about three or four, we went to... We were going to Easdale to look at a fishing with my father, mother, everybody, and my grandfather was going. And because my father didn't want us to tell any of the locals where we'd been, he told us we were going to Rum Tum Toffee Works. <laughs> <laughs> and I never, I didn't realise that we'd been to Easdale for years and years. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't take that fishing. He must have decided against it. Amazing. I've got a picture here. Sheena and Marianne of uh, the Bostle boys playing drafts outside with Grandpa outside uh, and your dad that's right. yeah. with a pipe. Mm. Yeah, we've got that one. Yeah, I think we've all got a copy of that one. <laughs> it's a good one. Did you um did the Borstal boys and the Iona community folk did they, anyone ever stay in contact with any of them at all? Did they kind of leave any mark and sort of like ah? Oh. Really later on when Bertie was there, so they were maybe, but not. I don't think so so much at the beginning. What do you think, Douglas? Well, I don't remember. I just remember the Borstal boys being there, and they were quite yeah. well controlled. Yeah, they were chasing the well. sheep because they'd never seen sheep before. <laughs> and I remember they found an arm and they'd gone across to the on the other side of Camus. Mm-hmm. There was quite a big pier where they were taken out of the granite at one time. Yeah. yeah. 
and the Boston boys managed to get across there, which wasn't that easy, really. No, of course not. And they'd found an adder, and the poor thing, of course, had risen up and uh, got to defend itself and then mollicated it. But this was a big excitement for them. Like, you know, these Glasgow boys had faced this wild animal and brought it back as a prize. But they were all very well behaved, I seem to remember. They weren't there all the time, I don't yeah. think. No, no, no. I remember uh, George McLeod, you know, Lord George being coming in to visit Grandpa and bringing me in a tin of Fanta, and it was the first time I'd ever tasted, you know. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> but it was lovely water. <laughs> yeah, in the morning, about maybe half five, six o'clock in the morning, Grandpa would be up, and who would it be, Sandy the Shepherd from Boogalee? Johnny. Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Bogalee would be walking out over and he would come down to visit uh, at that time in the morning. Goodness knows when he left home. Gosh. When I, uh, when I lived in Nutsford uh, in Cheshire many years ago, um, when my son was small, his, his uh, friend was having a birthday party. So I went to take my son to this birthday party and this boy's uh, grandparents were there. And I think I must have been about to go on holiday up to Scotland. And so we got into conversation about this and he said, oh, the island of Mull. Oh, I used to, I stayed there for a while. And by question, if we got it down that he had stayed at Camus and he knew my grandfather and oh, Auntie Anne. And then I was in this terrible predicament and I'm thinking, <laughs> Now, was he a Borstal boy? <laughs> and I since found out years years later, it was just the year before COVID, they, they actually, he actually came up to Iona on holiday and I went to have lunch with him over in Iona and he was part of the community. He wasn't a Borstal boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, what are the what are the stories? I mean, there's, I've got a load of things here that I, I thought about as sort of prep to talk about, like so the history, the people, the place, the smells, the touch, the the market for the as well, but the and the structure of the year, and also weather uh, was another thing I thought about. But what are the stories that stick out most in your memories of the place and the people? What what if I, you know if we can all go around and say what one you know, is there something that really really sticks out as a as a funny story for us, or a, 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 not even a funny story, just an observation of the time? Douglas, if I ask yourself, start off. Is there anything that sticks out for you? Uh, well, uh, no, I can't. Funny I was trying to think of that. I'm myself, that's probably a male view of the world. I think in terms of the fishing and what happened to the fish and yeah. all the technicality. And I do remember the stuff, but I just remember it always being like Gregor. I love the place. It was there was something absolutely special about it. And I had never lived anywhere where there was no electricity, no water, no loo. And I just thought this was fantastic. And I've loved it ever since. Yeah. I've tried to live as simply as I can. And I think Camus was a great template for that. And just to throw in a little bit about the fishing, because to me it was the best fishing job I've ever had. Because first of all, when you worked with the nets, it was silent. There was no, if you're working in creel boats and trawlers, and there's an engine going all day long and winches and haulers, and it's just noisy. And then, of course, the other thing with salmon fishing, you were on the shore for as much time as you were in the sea. So it was a really nice balance. And again, when you were on the shore, it was quiet and you were working away and very sociable often. So it was a lovely combination. And I was also thinking just as a little detail that the fish would be packed up in the boxes. It would be the boat would go around to Benesson in the afternoon. And if the tide was right, you would go into the village because you could nip into the hotel and get a half pint. I remember John Cooper and I did that 
both of us probably remember age, I suspect. So that was a big event, getting your half pint. And then if it was the weather wasn't, if the time wasn't right, you go into the big pier. And you go on the bus. And the bus complained after a while that the, the juice was coming out into the, the luggage compartment. So eventually they had plastic had come in and they were, a plastic sheet went into the bottom of the box to, to stop the juice coming out. But then it would go to Auburn. And as far as I know, there was a, a fish train went overnight down to London, I think it would go, mm -hmm. because I think the fish was sold mostly originally in Billingsgate. Yep. Uh, yeah. And eventually, I think it may have been, and it was W.S. uncles and Robbie uncles, there was various politics who bought this stuff. Yes. But uh, Glasgow eventually. So it was just a really well-balanced job. Another thing I was really important in terms of the changing culture for me was the fact that in those days there was a real sense of conservation as well as catch. Really? Uh, and the world changed rapidly at that time along with the new materials and there was a kind of, uh, people were out really to take whatever they could get. And so in those days, if you put your lobster peel down, uh, Alan always said, no, you can't put it back in the same place. You had to move it on. And I remember when I went to work with John Brilliant. Gray and the Kitty Fisher, and out of Oban, and we were fishing off the south coast of Mull, and these were like fleets of 60 creels. And we spent them back in exactly the same place. I'm saying, well, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm a canary, I'm a canary, so you do that. But of course, fishing had changed at that time, and it was, you know, people were out for what you could get. Really, so. Hello. That's so, fascinating. I'm just going to interrupt here, interject. Yeah, um, Celia has just arrived. Hey, hi, hi Celia. There's the camera down. Where are you? Oh, I'm not sure where to look. Hello. No. <laughs> oh, no, I'm still So Celia's here because it's she works for Southwest Malinois Development, and uh, it's that it's that organisation that has triggered this project that Alistair is delivering. Oh. Is that fair to see? Yes, perfect. Oh. <laughs> well, I, suppose the, I suppose the other side of it was as well that, that they had to do a lot of shooting of seals. Yes. Um, yeah. But, uh, CAMS was bad for seals, wasn't it, Sandy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we, uh, we had to shoot a lot of seals at Kayak as well. It was absolutely established that, that if you didn't Yes. cope with the, the the those that were damaging your livelihood yeah um then there you was have a, a livelihood yeah yeah now the days of the cotton nets from what i remember is the the sharks would go straight through you would be left with a great big hole That's but right. as soon as they brought in the cooling netting and the polish prop it was much stronger so you so tend to up in it and they would get stuck Oh, so there was one time Douglas will have a better recollection, but there was a basking shark in the net at Karsig that was about as big as a boat. Well, right, oh it was God. about twenty-three feet, twenty-two, 22 feet. feet. So the, the the shark was easy that length, and the mouth when it was open, we had our boat hook in it. It was which was six feet. So the net so, was destroyed. Uh, it was mangled, and it took. A long, long time to to get it out, to to uh, to, to 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 cut it out of the net. Were you there, man? No, uh, I was ashore. Uh, I was ashore. Uh, uh, we had that. I definitely had that when I was fishing with Dad at Kayak, uh, and then then try and cut it out and cut the net to bits. 
But basking sharks aren't after uh, salmon. They're after just much smaller no, things. No, so it's just by just accident. Just, yeah, it's just, they just, just don't see it. <laughs> Obviously, it, it must have been a clean net and they didn't smell it. <laughs> <laughs> this is well, quite extraordinary. You could actually tell in the summertime when there were sharks about because of the, the ropes would get a wee kind uh, of... A kind of it's slime kind ah, of that's stuff. Right. Like that. slime, wasn't it? I, yeah. I, I don't even know whether it was just in the water because if they wrapped themselves in the boat, the ropes, they would be, you know, their skin was so sandpaper. It was yeah, yeah. But the the bag uh, the bag net would get completely filled with red jellyfish, Ooh, and right. you had you had to to open this the the gate and the, the the slit in the net and tip all the red jellyfish out even before you started trying to get the fish out. Oh, no, even if there wasn't any fish in there, you had to tip all the jellyfish out because it was weighing the net down. And the jellyfish and, would kill the fish. Yeah, and that would was they? tons, the tons of jellyfish. Salmon. Yeah, the salmon would turn red if they were badly still. Yeah. And they were unsaleable. You couldn't sell them on the, on the open market. Yeah. So I remember Terry um, came up with a great invention which were long gauntlet the long gloves. Yes, <laughs> they didn't have anything at first at all. There was no gloves. I know. Just a major innovation, wasn't it? Because do you remember at Camus there was the red sheet, and that was the only thing that the, the men were to dry their hands on was the red sheet that hung yeah. beside the the water, um, <laughs> because it, so that yeah. nobody else would get stung. <laughs> and Grandpa used to say, you had, if you were badly stung, you had to go to sleep because that was the only thing that would cure it was a wee bit of sleep. Wow! And that was as a child. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I can admit, so it made your, your, this, your yeah. arm sticky. I can feel it myself now. It's just, <laughs> it's just. Another old memory I had uh, in, the, in the very early days, if, if a salmon was to be sold maybe locally or maybe to somebody in open, my grandfather would wrap it in iris leaves. There was no plastic then. There was no way we wrapping the iris leaves. It was neatly it was neatly enfolded in iris leaves and, and nicely you know tied up with Tarp a string with it. a handle. <laughs> well yeah. they couldn't bring paper over the because I think one or two of them No, no they didn't put paper on it. Just went like that. Did they call it that shit? I, 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 I was thinking it went all over the country. Dad used to send them all over, all over, just oh. in iris leaves. And yes. with a label. But mm. we tie the you tie the tail, tie the another knot at the at the nose, and there'd be a wee handle, if I remember rightly, in between. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. It went in the post. <laughs> Royal Mail would take it. I went the post. Yes. Gosh, they can fight lobsters and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Gregor, why don't you tell them the story you were telling me the other day about about Leeds? Oh, Leeds. Leeds, Leeds. Oh, that was that that wasn't related to to uh, uh, salmon. That was that was. Uh, Oh, well, that was rabbits, wasn't it? Oh, that's, do, do say that, because that, that, that was the off-season, wasn't it, the rabbits? So, yeah, go for that. In Karsik, he had sort of like three trades. Uh, he would, they, would, they would do this salmon fishing from uh, 
April right to August. That was that was the season, and then he would have a spell in the autumn uh, uh, catching lobsters, and then in the winter time uh, he would trap rabbits, large scale. You know, he snared rabbits all over Carrick and top of the cliffs. And there was an awful lot of rabbits. And during the war years, a lot of them went to England and to Glasgow, mm-hmm. uh, uh, butchers. And uh, there was a, a major butcher down in Leeds that he, he, he sent them, the rabbits down by train from Oban. And he wasn't getting paid. Weeks and weeks went by, he wasn't getting paid. So he wrote a letter to the chief constable in Leeds <laughs> complaining. <laughs> and the next week, the check came from the <laughs> That's, That's brilliant. Well, absolutely. No, I, envelope, I can in those days. No. And the envelope would just have been to the chief constable of Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's what you call the long arm of the law. Well, indeed. <laughs> I've got a photo uh, here that I've just taken um, from uh, Gus Stewart, the artist in Tobermory who worked with Terry uh, in the in the north there. Um, he's got a lovely painting of uh, Terry's shed. Let me just see if I can get this uh, to pop up for I you. I love the painting. Bothy. The Bothy, exactly. So the Bothy, there oh, you go. Yeah, the inside. Oh, That's yeah. all the inside, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if you can see that. And then I'll just maybe see if I make it a bit, bit bigger. Is that clearer if I do that? Is there anything in that photo that brings any art painting, sorry, that brings back any memories of uh, anything at Camus at all? Like, is that. I think, uh, I think the smell is the same because the nets are there, you know, mm. and, the, uh, and just the wood and the, the, the bothy roof was tarred, so there was always a tar smell. There's exactly the same bothy on Staffen Island in Sky. Is there? Aye. Well, I've seen a picture of it. Looking is that well. the hut on Staffan Island? Because that's, that's the... exactly what that is, Alistair. It's the tune. Ah, oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> ah, magic. Gosh. Aye. So, what other, yeah, other, other things that stick out from your memory? Marianne, how about yourself? What, what sticks out most in your Well, mind? the walk over. Ah, yes. Mm. Yeah. The walk over sticks in my mind. And because not that many years ago, a few years ago now, we went back and it's been well revamped, but it used to be quite a... Um, felt quite long when you were a wee kid. <laughs> yes, and we didn't yeah. go in. We went in at the at the hotel. Um, at, at, at Phoenix. At Phoenix Hotel. You went in. You didn't start where it starts now. Right. Uh, and, um That's the way the postman came over. The postman uh-huh, you went in that way usually. or It just depended on the weather. I mean... Um, but it was quite a long tramp, especially if you had to carry all your stuff and everything. I remember that. The main thing about walking over was that you had to do a pee before you went down where the guy, <laughs> where the men would be. Yeah. So if we were, if me and my auntie Anne were coming back over from Finnefort, we would always make sure that we went in behind the wall and peed before we went down <laughs> where anybody else would be. <laughs> but it would always be referred to as the bog, really, wasn't it? Yes, walking over the bog. It wasn't the track. So that a lot of you're a community folk, and there's a book that's coming out. Uh, which is down the track, but we would only refer to it as, as a bog. Yeah, and we had we'd cut but the peats. The peat cutting site was on the way over the bog, so right. if um, you weren't carrying anything else, you would carry a bag of peats back down yeah. um, with you. But, but do you remember uh, Colonel Lacey yes, who has a hotel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, there's a, there was always used to be a bit of a battle. I remember Tom yeah. would go across and almost purposely goad him by kind of saying hello. <laughs> and then we said, just walk on, he would say. And it was to do with rights and, yeah. you know, you had no right to walk over this land and all that nonsense. And it was just a, a strange class of cultures, wasn't it? It, uh, it was Carmelisa that made it really difficult going over that way. Yes. So maybe they had to then had to change or something, but I remember going over yeah. the ball. But but Bertie um mechanized it. Because uh, oh, right. <laughs> he, he got a quad bike. Or yeah. it was a three wheeler first of all, and then, then the halfling. The halfling. Was that the halfling? I think he has a quad bike first. Oh, the three wheeler. Definitely a halfling. I think the halfling as well. What was a halfling? I don't know that. So they still make them. It's a German uh, four wheel drive mini truck with a very very high. Oh um, yes, a cab thing on it. A push. Make it. Yeah. I think they still make that kind of thing. And Douglas, there's something I'm going to ask you as well about um, when you said about the the, the fish being put in, uh, you take them in the bus on certain days. What were they wrapped in in the box there to stop the juice coming out? Was it hessian, or was it was it the the iris leaves then as well, or what what was it that was used to kind of to pack them and, and make sure they didn't go off? Was it ice or <laughs> nothing? There was nothing. No, I, I'm trying to remember whether they even got the fish. Really. Yeah. No, they weren't gutted. They were. Absolutely, you know that. The, 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 the fish, the fish were iced on on the later days Absolutely. when they took the fish back to Finnefer to so, to staff a house, and they had a nice yeah, machine. So that was when we teamed up with Baron in London, and they want they reckoned it was the best because they were the least hung fish. Mm. They wanted them for smoking, right. and there was three ice machines. One for Finnefer, one for uh, Derwick, and one for Karsik. And there's three uh, Scotsman ice machines uh-huh. um, that were uh, used. And they, they had their own boxes. And they wanted, this is S. Baron. Uh, mm, Collins. Uh, Stern. It was, Collins. That, that Stern. was the name of the company, Baron. Ah. And uh, yeah. they, were, they were fish smokers in London. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want fish that had been hung and damaged when they were filleted on the inside. Mm-hmm. And most of our fish were the best quality fish. It's right round about the three brothers, actually. Mm-hmm. So they, they, there was a, a, a buying set up uh, to be able to buy these fish. And they, they, they said that they had to be iced. So that was when ice machines came in. Yeah. But that didn't last that long, did it, Sandy? Um, it, quite a while. I remember it was a number, a good number of years, actually. The ice machine, but they were, just, but they were always iced. They were iced right up to the end, weren't they? They were iced after that. That was the first ice. Hmm. But before Alistair was asked, before I remember, we just packed them in the WZ. So they had special long fish boxes. Mm-hmm. Have you um, the photo market? <laughs> Yay, go for it, yeah. No, I can't get back. <laughs> so the the, the 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 two uncles' brothers, there's still one son, I think, stays in TV Alley, actually. Oh. Hans' uncles. Can you see that? Yes, yeah. look at that. WS uncles, Salmon Factory in Glasgow. Yeah. yeah. So there would be one end that would be hinged 
and they want the end to be fixed. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. That's wrong. Is that the salmon on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> the one end of the strap was hinged, not the end of the ball. That's right, it was the strap come across, wasn't it? <laughs> it was just the, what, the metal bit because... And they were nailed, the lids were nailed on yeah. after, and then they were sent off. But the thing is, everybody was sending, you know, there was like Kayach, Mingri, uh, Lochbui, mm-hmm. uh, Ushkin, you know, everybody was sending fish to the that last ferry that went away. And I don't remember ever the ferry being cancelled. You, Sandy, when the fish couldn't get away. <laughs> let's not talk. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> but then again, it was a summertime. It was uh, didn't happen. Can I, I ask? To get Sorry. up through the gullet in the van, actually, in Carrick in the summer when the fishing was quite good, and it was. I think Maybe. it might even have been first gear going up the gullet with the van in the back, with the boxes in the back. Oh, Lord, yeah. But we we always wondered whether or not the boxes were fiddled with. Because the oh, only... Really? Oh, yeah, because the, the, the tally was never or seldom the same I, as it was when we went away. So we had a, a, a label that we stapled on the end of the inside, box. On the inside, it went of the box. Aye, and, the, and then there was a label on the outside as to who it was from, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't that secure because all you needed to do was to hoit the nails out, slip the thing over, and bang them back in. So when Baron came in, they had a banding machine. So you that's could, right. Yeah. So we had the 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 tape and the banding machine. So you put the clasp on it and seal it, and we used that for the wooden boxes after that as well. Mm-hmm. One one of the questions I have as well before we come to talk about the end there as well, and also kind of the random visitors that would be a very nice thing to talk about. But um, the yield, and Sandy, I think you were able to give me figures previously of the the yield when we talked about these things. What was the yield of the nets, and what was a good yield, and what was a surprisingly high yield? We were well. I think kayak fishing was always the best fishing. Yes, of course, kayak was definitely the best. It, it only had one net, and they, they always had more. More fish. Apple oh. Terry wouldn't ever tell you what you got. No, I was told they told anyone. But but Camus and Catrick, they collaborated a bit and they did swap who got what and what day. And and, and uh, if there was an order for the Clansman Hotel that, that wasn't able to be satisfied by Catrick, they could get it from Camus. Similarly, it was their guy Lounge or over Tayona. So there was a bit of more collaboration, but Uncle Terry tended to keep the keep the figure secret because he knew he was a way ahead because he had all one net and it was always catching more. That's what we always did anyway. Also, Sandy, was it not? It was something to do with the fact that Dad had to bid for the fishing every that's so right. often. Yeah, that's right. And and he had other competition up there as well. That's mm-hmm. right. And yeah. and he could lose it. So he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't want the figures coming out that could get to the other folk up there because he mm-hmm. had to be able to buy it and he had the other big customers. He didn't want them to get lost. Mm-hmm. So. I came across an old diary. I've got about I've got about three dozen old diaries that my grandfather kept. Wow. Right, oh, yeah, writing writing the, the amount of fish every day in the season. Oh, oh my god! Off season, 
And I just wish he was a better writer. Uh, <laughs> oh. out, and sadly, that a lot of these guys got quite damp yeah. in the travels. But I, I've still to look over a, a few. But I, I noticed one this morning, and I think it was um, around about 1960, uh, the total salmon for the year of, of, of that year at Camus was almost a thousand salmon. Wow. Well, that's but that's a perfect image for the film stuff for us as well. If so, Gregor, if it was okay, maybe to talk about that at a later date and maybe catch you kind of thumbing through the the, the books as well and, and talk well, about it. Be, that'll you'll, be... you'll be with me for about six months. <laughs> There's just so much. It's fascinating the, the things you see. In. Oh, the, the the tales of it are just remarkable. And right. it's, it's quite difficult as well because of the conservation now, you know, and, and them buying up all the fishings and, and the fishing coming to an end. It's, it really is quite emotional sometimes because it was such a way of life for so long for, for people on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. Um, so, that you know, the fact that the fish sort of dried up and, you know... Yes, it definitely fell away. Yeah, there was there wasn't enough to even send away. You know, there was only yeah. enough to just do the hotel orders. And, and what do you think that was? Was that was that overfishing? Was that predata- predation by seal? What was or not? Or what was going on there? Do you think it's overfishing? Isn't that really? Well, yeah. we never really we never really knew what it was because it's there was blaming um, fishing out at Greenland when the fish the fish weren't getting back. But then again, I don't I think there's the fish in the rivers weren't as many, there weren't as many spawning. There wasn't as much actually going in the first place. It was just a total um perfect storm of a whole lot of things. Yes. Everything was against everything. Yeah. And of course the price the prices didn't really reflect the fact that there was less of them either, which didn't help. I think also changing materials. Uh, the monofilament gill net was a big uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. So lots of the trawlers and ring netters and things, they would just set out a whole string of uh, monofilament net Miles. in the morning Miles. and go and do their day's work and then haul them at the end of the day. So there was a tremendous amount of blackfish, if you would like, and a fish. Yeah, catching everything else, yeah. And also it meant when with monofilament nets, people could come in who, I mean, working a bag net was quite a skillful task yeah. and required quite a lot of knowledge. Uh, whereas a monofilament gill net, you could, anybody could get one and chuck it out. And, and they're cheap, so. to, cheap to buy. Ah. Yeah. So were they, they, were, they were sort of fishing at the river mouth, so that would be stopping the... Then going back up. A lot, a lot of the Greenlanders got blamed, I think, a lot for the, the bigger... Uh, much more industrialised fishing of the salmon. Mm-hmm. So you'd have uh, the that would be miles long yeah. um, away in the route. There's uh, 1976, uh, between girls and salmon at Cash, like, it was something like 450 or something like that. Okay. There'll be some trout as well. That'd be very interesting to look at. Maybe like uh, you know, if Gregor, if you've got kind of like 1955, 1965, and nineteen seventy five, like just look at three years where it just three within a ten year period. That'd be fascinating to to, to see the yeah. the shape of that. That'd be yeah. The numbers were going down before the fish farms started. Uh-huh. The fish farms have had a lot of, rightly so, 
but the numbers were on the decline before the fist farms came in, or yeah. in any number, weren't they? So. Yeah. I think it was just a much bigger effort on fishing between Greenland and locally and Ireland, various places. Um, everybody was at it. Latterly, there's a lot of fishing in Ushkin. Yes. Um, and then there was some, uh, how shall we say, not very correct fishing done in Eastdale. Yes. Where yeah. they blew them up, basically. Did they? Yeah, they put a charge in it. Goodness me. No, was, see, again, it's interesting in terms of what changed because when I mentioned earlier about conservation, there was a whole culture at that time. When I was a kid, we did bird, we collected bird wrecks. But mm. the older boys made it very clear that you had never to take more than you absolutely needed. You never cleared the nest. It was frowned upon to do that. So it was very measured within the st structure of the culture and the same with fishing. But with the change in materials, change in boats, less fiber, and a different attitude come in, and it was really take what you yeah take what you could get as much as uh, you could get, which and was such a shame. Really, it was. It uh, was quite different, you know. Bishkin was very much like that. Well, it was a business rather than it a was, living. It, it, was was a, a, it was or a lifestyle. Yes, because they had more and more boats and more and more mm -hmm. young guys, and very intensive. Mm -hmm. um, and they must have taken a lot of fish out from. Yes, a huge amount. Um, because they had, they were running like three boats, I think, sometimes. And I think they had a lorry once or twice to take away the stuff. Yeah, they had their own, uh, own, own truck. Uh, they did have their own truck. I yeah. think so, their own pickup. So it's just a different scale of operation. But I mean, early, early, from Camus, the, the, the boxes would go to Iona when the King George Oh, that's Iona. right. I've done that with them. Yeah, we went on mm -hmm. the Catherine. <laughs> and now you're going to see them. The Catherine, I remember we went to Iona with the Catherine, and it was stop every so often. It was a petrol paraffin Kelvin. That's right. And it would just stop every so often. And I'm like, oh, is this all right? <laughs> Did it continue to do that when you had it up in... I think it put a new engine in it, didn't it? Yeah, I think so. Huh? Gosh. And, and the boxes would go on the King George yes. on its round mull trip. Oh, yes. And the King George was really fast. So the King George would leave open in the morning, go to Iona, uh, unload in Iona, uh, go to Stafford. Sometimes it would come back to Iona, mm -hmm. and then you would drop the fish into the boat. The, the King George would take the fish to uh, the railway pier in Oban. They would then get loaded on the nighttime train. Mm -hmm. That would connect to the nighttime train down to London. And they could be literally 24 hours and it would be in London. But we must have gone to Glasgow Fish Market most of the time, Sandy, because it's Glasgow that's on these boxes. The I uncle think eventually, uh -huh. yes. I, th I, that was, I think it was maybe before the uncles and, and yeah. when the fishing was big. But but none of the refrigeration, no refrigeration or anything. It would just go... Straight to London. Just mm. really fast into Billingsgate. Yeah. A lot. An awful lot of the salmon here too was sold locally. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Gordon Grant uh, in Iona took an awful lot of salmon from Camus mm -hmm. and the Klansman Hotel. Mm -hmm. the, the tourists were really well off in them days. The, the bus mm -hmm. parties were salmon, salmon salads. Yeah. Yum. Especially near the end when there wasn't as much yes, um, fish. transport. Yeah. Can I just ask you while I remember, Sandy, do you know why Camus is spelt 
C-A-M-A-S nowadays when it should be C-A-M-A-S. That's interesting. That is really interesting because I would always write C-A-M-U-S, but actually in Gaelic, it's Camas, I think, on the map. No, I don't think so, is it? Or Ordnance Survey. Well, any other Camas in any other part of the world is C-A-M-U-S, isn't it, Alistair? I'm not sure. This is what... Um, I'm, I, th- I thought it was A A S. It's the same as tourists. It's like tourists and tourists. Um, I had this when I was doing my Gaelic studies because um, I wrote um, tourists with a U, like tourists Mara. But um, I think uh, my my sister said no, it's with an A, like tourists. Um, so I don't know. Really? Yeah. So I think it's an orth- really? orthographic question. I'm not quite sure. Um, uh-huh. but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look at. I'll get Dwelly for you. Yeah, that's the thing. Hold on. Yeah, get Dwelly. <laughs> Sheena, can you share the picture of, of Douglas? I'll try. Picture of me? Yeah. Oh, at Camus. I don't know that I can. I'll try. Well, if you shared the other two, you should be. No, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, on the honest survey map, it's C-A-M-A-S. Oh, but that could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I think it may be right. I think that's right. It might be wrong. But I think that, that, <laughs> that, that I think that that's because it's changed because of the the community that's changed it to Camas, not Camas. Well, because ca- there was no fishing there for a while, and I think that they would have taken it from the map. So there's Camas uh, with an A is a mould for making bullets. Isn't that interesting? Camas is a mould. Exactly. For, uh, but it's so a, we, would have, we would have spelt it Camas. Uh, we would, yeah. But Cam, uh, let's see, Cam, Cam, uh, Camas, yeah, to, uh, with a U, as Sheena said correctly, is there's a bay, a creek, and a harbour. Yeah, yeah. A, a crooked exactly. rivulet. The space between the, th- oh, it's also the space between the thighs. There we go. Um, stairs. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A bay or an inlet. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> there we are. Um, and then... Uh, uh, what else is it? The stern seat of a boat as well as the camas. And camas clue in the Nimuxtua and the bay of clua of many waves. So, yes, it's with, it should be with a U. Thank you for spotting that, Sheila. That's really interesting. So, Can I throw in a wee deviation here that I thought was really important to mention? Was that Annie worked in the fishing and Katie worked in the fishing. So, oh. that women were an intrinsic part of the salmon magnet fishery. And they just weren't really involved very much in any other fishing. There was one or two. There was a lassie who used to creel on a, a creel boat up at Alva Ferry, um, the Orkney man's aye, daughter. Aye, aye. Is that aye, aye, aye. But so that was the only bit. I just thought, to me, it was oh. natural that women yeah. would be fishing. Yeah. Uh, well, a kid, mum, mum yeah. did the fishing at Carsig because it was wartime, um, after wartime, and the men... Men were away. Uncle, I think it was Uncle Johnny went away to war, so Mum took over his position with Grandpa. Mm-hmm. But there was also a lady that used to fish with Uncle Bertie, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Jane, 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 yeah. Jane, Jane, yeah. Over the fishing from Bertie at Camus, mm-hmm. right? I see. She, ah, she did it after Bertie stopped. All right. With um, Mark Jarden. Yeah, that's right. Of course, right. Uh, a couple more questions then, if that's okay, because I'm conscious of your time, because this is, this is fantastic, though. Thank you. Um, it's, um, it's really nice for us as well, Alison. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's fab. Um, well, so can I go back to the women thing? Actually? Yes, please do. Yeah, please build on that, yeah. I was thinking about this more recently, and I was thinking how Camus 
Well, Auntie Anne was just there. Mm -hmm. And she was never really, uh, it was always grandpa that was the sort of key person. Mm -hmm. But if Auntie Anne wasn't there to sort it out, it wouldn't have happened. And it all it all completely depended on Auntie Anne, completely. And after it was her and Bertie, Bertie spent most of his money in the queue road. <laughs> um, and it was her that was sorting the fish, and it was her that was doing the bed and breakfast, and it was her that was selling the fish, although Bertie would be the figurehead. She did the accounts. And, and she did the whole lot. Yeah. And, and she never seemed too busy for any of us younger yeah. nieces yeah. or nephews. Never, ever. Exactly the same with our own mother. I mean, she was the one that went away down there at five o'clock in the morning and she was the one that lay out on the ground shooting seals, you know, just the same as he did. Yes. And she sold oh, all the fish at home as well and yep. she kept the books. I mean, I was thinking about career women within the McInnes family. <laughs> so Gregor's mother, Kirsty's mother, was, was a, a career teacher and my mother was the principal earner, I think, in for quite a long time in our family. Mm -hmm. She was a teacher too. So. She she was getting single head teacher benefit. Uh, so she would have earned quite a lot of money as a single head teacher, mm -hmm. doing all the everything for the schools. And so would Auntie Flora. So so that the women in the family actually were really strong and really powerful. And I was thinking back to thinking back to, to to the generation back from that. And then I was thinking about so so our Auntie Jessie uh, had this astonishing operation for a for a, a hemorrhage in her brain um, that was nobody expected to survive for this from this. And she she's she survived for years and years and years after this, albeit with less ability. Mm -hmm. But our grandpa's sister, Big Auntie Jessie, I think we've got her camp bed for when she was at the First World War. Uh, she was in the first dressing station mm -hmm. as a nurse in the First World War. So the women in the family were huge, massive. And they were never, hardly ever, given the credit for it. Well, that was the way with most women at that. Still is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you think that, I was just talking to Gregor about this this morning, uh, B.A.J. and our grandfather's mother, Flora, um, she was she was sort of almost the head of it. She was a grocer in Oban. So yes. it wasn't Grandpa Hugh that was the, the grocer it was granny that was the grocer so you know she she was a magnificent woman as well she's the one that mm. supposedly walked all the way to Iona from mm. Crogan but don't know if that's true wow <laughs> yeah Gosh. so yes you're right Sandy there's there have been incredible women in the McInnes family McPhail's that stands the big and all your guys, uh, great big auntie Jessie, she used to send food parcels. Yes. <laughs> from I was always fascinated by that. From Paisley. It must have come from the wartime or something, wasn't it? Yes, uh, but there was eggs from Karshig sent to Harlem in Paisley. In Paisley, oh. well, maybe My I goodness. I don't know, but she used to send parcels to Karshig. Mm-hmm. 
Ken Flute and all sorts of stuff, eh? Gosh, that's brilliant. Well, let's let, let's see about the the end. How did it come to an end? When did the family involvement with Camus come to an end? And how did that happen? Stand out. When Bertie would give it up. I suppose he just retired, didn't he? He did retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was getting on yeah. a bit. So that this if this is particularly Camus, I've got I've just been looking at this. Um, I think that Kashig, my my father was not, didn't keep well. He was told early days that he wasn't going to be able to do what he he, he carried on doing. So I think that, that Kashig finished in mid eighties. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I will have more to do with Camus. I might come back to you with that, Alison. No problem. Bud and Terry and Katie Stolp and I'm just trying to figure that out. So it would have been, uh, let's see. Well, Mum was still working at the fishing when she was in her 70s. So, yeah. Um, But I was fishing that last two or three years. So, and I'm just trying to think, Rory would be about seven. So he was born in 87. So that would have been 90 four or something like that, I think we would have finished. And then it went to Neil. And then uh, did uh, the Turnbulls not have it for a while, Nick Turnbull? I'm not sure. I don't know if they did. um, Nick had a net there, definitely did have a net. Mm -hmm. Wow. He maybe came around it or something. He came around, but I think he did have a net out. Yeah. Oh, that's... But but, I mean, by that time, it just wasn't, there wasn't enough. And it it, um, was... This didn't the crown stop stop it? Uh, I think so, but I think someone said I can't remember if it was yourself, Sandy, or maybe yourself, Sheena, saying about uh, Sheila and Derek over uh, near Oban. They've I think they still got a net. At Appen. At Appen, yeah. I think it's one net at Appen. That's it. So I think that's um, Sheila and um, Derek that does the currying um, as well. Awesome. Derek. Derek Wilson, yeah. Derek Wilson, yeah. yeah so I think so. so well, that's that's Loch Fiachadai. He was in Loch Fiachadai, yeah, south of Oban, and he's given he's given it up purely oh, because has. of food. He, he hasn't done it for three years now no. because, of, because of seals. He said. Well, he, he, I remember speaking to him. He kept it going out of absolute principle yeah. to stop anything else. So to stop or to keep the tradition going, and he mm. said that if he got one fish in a year, it would be enough for him to carry on for the next year because he was just so dogmatic that it wasn't going to get stopped. If there's anywhere still doing spagnet salmon fishing, it's up in the northeast coast. No, that that stopped as well because that uh-huh. was coolers that were fishing up there, and there's a big there's a, a film called Of Fish Of Fish and Man. Yep. You've seen that maybe. Yeah. It, they got completely stopped. Um, I think we bought. I think we when bought. that guy asked us for the for the information about that book, Sandy, he said then that there was somebody fishing at Appen. The Kipper Man. Well, he's on, the Kipper Man, he'd spoken to Sandy McLaughlin, but Sandy will be retired nowadays. So right. Um, 
Well, that was cool, be but I don't know if that's as well. That be well. That's cool, be that might well be happened. We've got that's videos of our, of us fishing the net, Alistair. If you need a bit of video, yes, <laughs> uh, definitely. Is it um, is it on VHS or is it encoded on for the computer? Got it on a CD, I think. It's so certainly on CD. Oh, definitely, yeah. It must I, be somewhere around. Douglas, a DVD. Douglas said that's right. DVD, yeah. That's what I mean. We've just been watching one from Douglas. Well, oh, okay. one, my brother used to do is it, um, eight millimeter or whatever. Super eight, yeah. And he's got a kind of collection of bits and pieces on a disc, which includes Tom and Sandy and Barry Reynolds, Reynolds and Karshig, okay. and a lovely summer's day. And you can see how the net works and so on. If I could use that, that would be awesome. That would really be amazing. Well, I was going to try, my mic wouldn't take it in. So I could, I'll try and get Alistair to do a. Uh, cut it out and, and do some copies. Definitely, really yeah. see, so. That's extraordinary. So yeah. That must have been quite an early, early on time because we adapted the boat quite a lot after that. After so that. we put uh, wheel steering in it. So that was, still shows the tiller on the Mandy. Oh, the other thing is that, you know, over at Anamurkin, what's it called? Thaskadale, they've opened a, a museum there for, at the fishing station and they've got the Cobalt back over i don't know if it's the mandy sandy no it's not the mandy i don't think but they brought they brought the original cobalt back to a uh, fascadale and they're they're doing a museum in the ice in the ice shade wow. oh. so the cobalt the cobalt that we used at Karsig is not it's not traditionally used on the west coast at all no no exactly it's, it's an east coast boat um it was a cobalt they had at fascadale though i think if you need that book, The Leaper, has anyone no, read that? No, I haven't got that. Thank you. Who's you that one by? Douglas. No. It's um, three years salmon fishing at Faskadale by this guy from Edinburgh who went there for the summer, three years running to fish with uh, the guy whose name I've forgotten that I had the fishing at the time. It's, it's really quite interesting. I love that. Yeah. I got it out of the library. Uh, I'd like to see that yeah, I think a... it was just a special time. Uh-huh. Can I just throw it there? Really thinking back, it was a very special time. We were very lucky to be born after the war. Our yeah. children were valued and we were relatively free. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole tradition I had come into without any background to it. and didn't really value it in terms of its place in history, but it was a part of the world that was coming to an end. And also an attitude to the world, perhaps, that was coming to an end. So. And it was it was quite um there was quite a lot of people got work out of it, wasn't there? You know, when you think yeah, of all yeah. the people that were employed with, with all the different yeah. fishing stations. Well, if you think in those days it was all individuals who were self-employed. Yes. So now yeah. you have a nice job with the fish farm and you'll get a pension, mm-hmm. but it's not the same. But, and had they invested in wild fish rather than farm fish, yeah. you could have had a really vibrant yeah. uh, industry and and again to lose salmon as a resource. Is a sin. I mean, that's so. so and I think, I think it was, you know, it was all that bothy living that was good as well. Because over at Mingri, um, where Peter uh, McLean fished, the 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 bothy there was a, just a shed. And I remember going when we were kids and thinking it was quite big. Going back there as an adult, and it was tiny, uh, <laughs> a tiny wee shed. And the guy who fished with Peter was from Craig Newer, and he went up there on a motorbike on the Sunday night, stayed there, and went home on the Friday night. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, we put, I remember we put um, 
um, bed frames into the roof space at the shed in Cam in Karsik. And what an adventure it was going there um, to see. It was all really quite an adventure. I don't know how many folk would do that adventure kind of stuff nowadays because, you know, most of it was just kind of quite rough and ready, but it never really mattered. It didn't seem to matter. I remember at Camus being absolutely enthralled by a darts board that John Cooper had. Yeah, board, yeah. And uh, one, one, of, one of our stories is the morning that uh, Mary Ann was about six or something and she was sleeping in one of the back bedrooms with my mother and father and she came running through and shouted, oh, there's a kangaroo in the room. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hare, a big hare sitting up there. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, but there was, you know, at, Ka at Camus, you know, you had to eat mouldy bread and tinned milk. And one of the great things was uh, what's it called? Cremola foam, because oh. you can carry that over the ball. But, and then you got a drink. But you know, the bread would only ever arrive on mull when it was mouldy. That's why Auntie Anne would make the scones. I know, and, and thinking about that, she had a two a two ring gas burner and a pail to wash the dishes, a basin to wash the dishes in. But mind you, it was mostly mackerel, wasn't it, and boiled tatties. Um, they were boiled tatties. They were golden ones. Golden ones, yeah. And, 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 and they just about every day. And, and a boiled egg at night. Caravana. Uh, <laughs> well, that was a delicacy. That yeah, yeah. Well, I totally. Very, very much, uh, Did you ever have salmon at all? Well, hardly ever. ever. No. Special special occasions only, I think. Sometimes when we had when we had special visitors, we had salmon, but it was worth more. Yeah. It was worth more than it um to sell it on than to eat it. So unless something a lot of crabs though. Yeah. If if a fish was badly damaged and there was just a bit of it left, sometimes we would have that. But we didn't. As a run of the mill, I don't think my father really liked our father really liked it very much anyway. So, <laughs> so we had time because the seals could the seals were smart enough to get into the net and to get out of the net and to mm -hmm. eat in the net. They, the the fish weren't smart enough to get out the three doors, but the the seals could go right in and right out again. And we would at Castle we would find damaged fish sometimes in the leader and sometimes in the head as well. Mm -hmm. So we would have fish. Yeah, I remember getting quite, fed up with it, really, because it was yeah. <laughs> yeah. quite regularly. But I was going to say the other reason for the whole demise was the the increase in the reliability of the supply from salmon farms and the 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 lack of differential in the price mm. for the because people mostly didn't it didn't realise the the. The huge difference between a fish that's been out at sea all its life and gone to Greenland and come back again, kind of thing, compared to something that's been fed uh, in the in the fish farm. And yeah, we definitely weren't catching the same numbers of sand. Yet. I mean, there was just I think that's right. the same number. It, it was an incentive not to when there was very little money involved. Uh, yeah. But but. My mother would never eat salmon, ever, uh, 
because she knew that it would only ever have come from a fish farm after having the after the fishing stock. Mm-hmm. And she, she said she wouldn't eat it. And and she didn't ever make a, a fuss about it. But I remember asking her. So well, I've I've had that um, until very recently. I wouldn't eat uh, salmon from the shop. I have eaten it now a few times, right now. Yeah. So I asked. I'm the same. I wouldn't eat it unless I have the money. I like it out of Douglas, when you started at first, were they still taking? Were they actually taking the leaders off at the weekend? Oh well, now you see that was always a doubt. If it was too windy, of course you couldn't because it would have been dangerous. Mm-hmm. And there was always a bit of a gale just before twelve o'clock on a Saturday, <laughs> and then everybody, everybody's always looked to see if the fishery protection vessel was coming round for a wee tour. Right. But on the whole, I think the, the, the leaders would come in fairly often. Mm-hmm. I think the problem was when the grills were running and you had a couple of weeks or something when you really made your money and it was just, well, it's hard not to take to not to leave the leader out on those occasions because your whole year could depend on it, couldn't it? So, uh, but in Karsik, we had nosy neighbours. Uh, so we had to cook men. That would go mm. and inspect the coast by boat from... Easdale. Oh, really? They were the ones that so blow up the fish as well. So there's a lot of gosh. That's a shame. Some of it became a bit aggressive. A wee deviation on the stories there about the King George, because you can set your time of day whether you worked in Camus or Cashing. And it went the opposite way different days, I think. Uh, But one of the stories of the King George was that the they used to run through the Tinker's Hole to get round onto really? the south. So, so the story goes, which what? was a very, very narrow passage. Right. And seemingly one day he was going, the skipper was going through there pretty fast and discovered there was a yacht just where the little reef is at the narrowest point. And fortunately, seemingly the bow wave of the King George lifted the yacht over and managed oh. to sail past without flattening it. <laughs> and after that, I think they were banned from, from doing that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> how true that is, I don't know, but that was oh, a story. Also, uh, just past the Tinker Shaw, when you make that south passage, there's a rock where I think it was the rosebud went down. Yes, 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 and and yes. that was always in our minds as well. The rosebud, were, had, had, I, think, I don't know whether they're herring, but they, were, they had a full catch on and I think it was dark and they went full speed into this reef oh, uh, and they all the whole boat and the crew went down. Ah. It was actually we saw a, a, a memoriam for them ah. in, in I think it was Lossiemouth. Right. Well with a new school spoke. That's a shame. Sorry I've not, not heard of that one before. That's, that's no, just, um, I, I have to say salmon fishing was the best job I've ever had. It was everything about it was right, wasn't it? It was just that. And Alan McInnes was the kind of little boy's hero. We all looked up to Alan. He was, and he just was strong and solid and clear. Well, and no, never, the only time I ever had a hard word from him was I was merely throwing stones at a bit of a tin can or a bit of wood down at one of the ports where the boats would come in. They were just yelling up from the door because they spent hours, of course, clearing all the stones away. He was me gaily as a kid throwing stuff in. So, uh, you know, a lovely man and very, very uh, influential, I would say. A real kind of rock of a character, wasn't he? It was just a... I mean, I, we would only ever have really known him when he was an old man. 
Mm. Yeah. And I can remember him carrying a gas cylinder oh, that's right. on his shoulder oh. over to over to Camus. And, and, and then, and, and, and then oh. it would be a, a, a bag of fish on the way back. Mm. Would, so that would be the other way, actually. You would take the fish in a Hessian bag. Oh, that's right. You'd well over there. He's a big, strong man. In his, mm-hmm. in his youth. But in the, during the First World War, he was actually a sniper on a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. Aye. John's told me about that. It's quite extraordinary. Well, if I was to round it off, if I was to ask you each for one image, because this is this will be a film as well, as like because you can tell, like you know, there's this that we've been talking for for an hour and thirty six, and it's just fantastic. It's, there's so much in it, so it'll be a podcast as well as a film. But for the film side of things, if I was to ask you for one image each of Camus that sticks in your mind that I could maybe mm-hmm. think about trying to construct a sort of montage around, is there one image that really sticks? For you, like, um, let's see, uh, Kirsty, you said about coming in um, at the top and the smell of that coming back to you. Is there? A, a, a... Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it must have been the nets and the tar. I don't know why that smell would still be there, but mm. it, it was. It was amazing. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so just the the nets hanging up on the green, really, for me. Mm. Sheena, how about yourself? What would it be um, for you? I guess that image of of um, Sandy's father raising his arm for the boxes is quite strong with me. Mm-hmm. Yep, single for the boxes. Fab. Marianne, how about yourself? Well, probably I go with Kirsty as well. Like that photo that Sheena's just shared with you at the at, out at the mm. the nets, picking the nets. You know, it's it's sort of yeah, and just or just as you come down the path and then you see it, how it's. It's much posher now than it was. Wow. Yes. But, you know, you come around the corner and it's there. Lovely. So you come around the corner, yeah, that's fab. I uh, mean, the garden was a big thing. There was a, the garden mm-hmm. was very productive. We ate a lot of stuff out of the garden and that uh, was another job that poor old Auntie Anne had to do the most <laughs> of. Mm. Did somebody tell me that they've planted a tree in memory of Uncle Bertie in the garden? Did somebody tell me that? That was the community did that. Well, that's nice. Oh. A lot of trees planted. Yeah. Sandy, how about yourself? Is there an image, one particular image that sticks out for you? Um, I'm just trying to think about it. in the summertime. There was very little uh, discipline, but we all knew what we were meant to do <laughs> or not do. <laughs> or, or or what we were not to do but it didn't seem to be that that it wasn't strict it was it was just understood oh, and it was fun oh, it's fun and quite relaxed yeah. but it never felt hard work not that I was there when I was working but it didn't it didn't it didn't seem a task mm-hmm. everybody just did it actually without I don't know quite how the instructions carried on clearly through the different generations, but they certainly did. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. remember the weather being particularly bad. I just remember the <laughs> sunny days. I remember the odd day of the year, but... yeah, It was always sunny. It's always but... sunny at the Bothy. We used to think that... <laughs> oh, so it was better climate at the day. We used to think that if we went down to the Bothy, it was bound to be able to go swimming, <laughs> even if it was horrendous. <laughs> Gregor, if I was to ask you then the image question as well, is there one image that sticks out for yourself? 
Well, I, I can just uh, second what Douglas said earlier, just about the, the peace and quiet of the place. Mm -hmm. Because before that, I was working in, you know, all over Scotland in, in industrial places, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the odd factories. And just coming to Camus, it was just so peaceful. And the only time you would hear anything from outside, you know, was... was uh, uh, Bertie or my grandfather putting on the battery radio for the uh, forecast. Yes, the transistor yeah. radio. For the, the wireless. The wireless. <laughs> and then it would go off. Pips for the time, the pips for the time. Quiet again. That's right. It was good. Yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, I talked to um, uh, DK over in, in Iona as well. Uh, there's so much to, to talk about there as well. But he was saying about the, the, the forecast, how uh, not to take the forecast for Malin, but to take it for Greenland or something Hebrides. like that? Hebrides. No, no, it wasn't even Hebrides. He said it's another place. That's what's going to affect us yeah. more because of the way it comes in. It was, and that's really, really interesting to talk about that as well. But, um, Douglas, I was to ask you the same question, like one visual image that sort of sticks in your mind from, from that whole period. Well, similarly, I do remember the transistor radio for the shipping forecast and then the Gaelic programme would be on just before it or just after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the ball of golden wonders on the table. But probably the image that sits out for me about the place was spring tides. Mm -hmm. I always loved high spring tide. Mm -hmm. And when the, the boat was kind of moored the other side of the, the island, which wasn't an island most of the time, but when the mm -hmm. spring tide would come, it would come along. And there was just something magical about that water reaching up and filling up all the spaces. And I suppose that relationship between humans in the sea, that space between the land and the, on the shore and the tidal area has been always crucial for human evolution, hasn't it? Totally. There's something, that whole interaction, especially as a child, because that's where you would spend your time. And there was something, it just captured your imagination. And I don't know why that would be, but I, you could play for hours all on the shore, couldn't you, and just never mm -hmm. be bored. It was, I don't know why, but it was, just, it was just a lovely thing. It was a special thing. And that interaction, with the sea, with the water. Um, it was just, it was unspoken, but it was a heart of the whole thing yeah. as, the, as yeah. it came and went. It was just of course. Ah. Just of course. And it was mostly, of course, of course, young, very young teenage boys that were working, wasn't it? Because Duncan Peckney, yeah. John Cooper, yourself. Um, that's right, yeah. They, I was speaking to Anda recently, and he said he worked for a Did while. Did he? Ah. I didn't know that. I mean, when Woolly Woods came in at one stage, and when Bertie was there, there was a lot of younger guys that are still here that were, well, young air, but not young anymore, that were different seasons with Bertie. Thank you all so much. Is there anything, before we round up, is there anything anyone else wants to say or anything anyone wants no, to... I'm sure we'll all think of something once we're awful. God, oh, I should have said such and such. Oh, <laughs> totally. We've still got chocolate cake here, so... Oh, uh, we... Kirsty, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to drop down, you'll be fine. No, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about yeah, it. Get your peace on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all so Thanks, much. Alice. It's been good. Oh. It's really nice. It's been really good, yeah. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, lovely to see you all. Thank you so much. I Brought really appreciate that. Brought back memories for us all.
Thank you to Sheena, Marianne, Kirsty, Sandy, Gregor and Douglas. It was such a delight to get you all together and hear your memories. Thank you so much. I think Sheena and Sandy actually may be the first people to get a double appearance on the podcast too. Last summer, Hannah Fisher, renowned musician and former podcast guest, and myself, worked with Olva, Dervig, Bernesson and Loch Donhead Primaries to create podcasts in the What We Do in the Winter Style through Fishing and Gales Treor Project, again, funded through Year of Stories from Visit Scotland. The young people's episodes feature songs and poems that they wrote, conversations with local people and experimental sound collages of the world around their schools. It was such a brilliant project to work on, I loved it every single minute of it. If you want to hear the podcasts, please follow the link on the website or in the show notes. Now, if you want to support the podcast and the archiving project, as it does take quite a lot of time, please feel free to click on the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But with things changing on a daily basis and the weather going right down below zero, please don't worry if you can't or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and went havering around with us rather than not. And on that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. I know I say it every time, but I really do greatly appreciate it. Right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care whenever and whenever you are. More than thang. Shinakade. <laughs>